Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish Podcast. Do you have to sacrifice antibody titer for quality? I'm Brandy Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Dr. Adam Elhoffi, Chief Scientific Officer for BioS Laboratories. Dr. Elhoffi developed the core technology for the S line of products and aided in creating patents around novel uses of materials. Dr. Elhoffi has over 14 years of scientific research experience in the areas of immunology, neuroscience, and oncology. He was funded by both the National Institutes of Health and the Multiple Sclerosis Society as an investigator at Northwestern University Medical School. His doctoral research won him the award of the top five trainee scientists by the American Association of Immunologists. Dr. Elhoffi has 14 scientific publications in peer-reviewed journals. He has played a variety of roles with startup biotech companies, ranging from principal investigator to director of corporate development. I wanted to start today about talking about increasing monoclonal antibody yield and how this has been a focus of bioprocessing scientists for decades. However, more recently, product quality attributes such as glycosylation have increasingly become an area of focus, and we're hearing more and more about product quality. Can you comment on why that is? Yes. First, thank you for having me um, and going through this topic. I think it is a very interesting topic. The first part of quality is when people started realizing that there were different aspects to the protein beyond the sequence that were important. So there are a lot of post-translational modifications that occur, like glycosylation, sialation, Um, that can affect the way the protein behaves. And there have been many seminal studies showing the antibody can be either immunogenic, um, if you change glycosylation patterns, or can have longer life in the blood, or cannot bind a certain way. So there's many different aspects to protein performance that are affected by post-translational modification. And those particular aspects can have an effect on the therapeutic range. So, for example, if the amount of time the antibody is in the blood is changed, and some of that's driven by sialation, there there are other things that drive that. Um, But the length of time that the antibody circulates can change the half-life. And if you have a short half-life, you would have to have higher doses. If you have a longer half-life, you can have smaller doses, and then that has an impact to the patient, also has an impact on how much needs to be produced. Um, And then on the other side of it, there's certain modifications that can make the antibody immunogenic. And in that scenario, you can imagine, then you can only give the antibody so many times um, before the patient can no longer receive it. So two different issues, but both are driven by the post-translational modifications. The other half of it is essentially um, once something has been found to be therapeutic and the ranges are set for post-translational modifications, it's then marked. And then once that is established, then that sets the bar for any future biosimilars or then have to look like that particular protein. So there is efficacy, there's dosing, and then there's the whole regulatory side. So this whole concept of um, post-translational modification and importance is increasing, um, and, and, and so it's an exciting field. 
I wanted to ask you a little bit about optimization because that's a word we hear often. And in the past, optimization of of cell culture media has often been associated with increasing titer. And now we're hearing more about it with product quality. Uh, Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges associated with optimization efforts aimed at manipulating titer and quality together? Well, that's a great question. So the original way that you hear people talk about establishing a stable clone is screening based on titer. So they look for growth characteristics, whether or not the clone grows well. And then after that, they look for whether or not the clone produces well. And then that's the clone that's selected. And then after the clone is selected, then they start to examine some of the post-translational modifications, some of the glycolytic patterns, um, looking for how similar it is to the target that they were going after. And now those two processes are starting to happen simultaneously. Um, and so it, it then changes some of the paradigms. In some cases, the exact levers that you use for optimization of tighter are the same ones that can have implications on glycosylation. Um, for example, the pH range can have an implication on the um, different patterns that you get. So the lower pHs, you can have some of the more lower order glycoforms. And in some cases, some of the um, higher titers are running at some of the, the slightly lower pHs of 6.8 instead of running closer to 7 or 7.1 where you might get slight changes or, in some cases, dramatic changes in your glycosylation profile. The other things that can change the glycosylation profile are some sugar nucleotides. And some of those sugar nucleotides or even sugars can compete and cause reduced proliferation and therefore reduce titer. And so some of the media additions or media constituents are in direct conflict. So the optimization schemes become a lot more complex. And so the original pathway where people were selecting their stable clones based on titer, and then after that, trying to make adjustments, so then a secondary optimization to fix for the post-translational modifications, you get these sequential optimization characteristics. And so now what you're starting to see more and more is that even before the optimization on titer occurs, you can have genetic modifications of cell lines to try to optimize the glycolytic pattern from the beginning. So the design is set up such that you get the appropriate glycolytic post-translational modification based on some of the enzymes that have been put in genetically. And then you then select based on titer. So it's a different scheme for optimization. Um, in other cases, that's not the pathway. And so then the, the, the two-step optimization pathway where they optimize for titer and then come back and optimi- optimize for the glycolytic pattern, what can then happen is that the titer that they were able to achieve is then dropped significantly in order to achieve the glycosylation pattern that that people are targeting. And so there's a push and pull. So there are only so many levers that you have. You have process parameters, you have media additions, you have 
enzymes that you can add or, or modify to be more correct. It just depends on how you want to modify them. And those are the levers for affecting glycosylation. And then the levers for affecting titer are similar. You have your process parameters, your PO2, PCO2, pH, osmolarity. You have your media addition. The media additions are slightly different um, for which ones you would add to affect a change. And then you have a different strategy for increasing titer where people are now using the constant perfusion or they're increasing the amount of the cell density where you might see double or triple the amount of cell density. So the strategies are different. And so that has implications of this, of everything is connected. So this optimization becomes a little bit more complex. And so essentially that gives you some of the scenarios of, of trying to figure out the pathway forward. But yeah, it's a complex question. I hope hope I at least touched on some of the issues there for optimization for both um, titer and glycosylation. I think you did a great job summarizing the delicate balance in terms of optimizing for both titer and glycosylation and how different tools that one might use to optimize can have an impact on the other. Could you talk about if there's any areas of opportunity to influence titer and glycosylation that have not been largely addressed? You bet. So the first half of that is basically addressing where glycosylation occurs. And glycosylation occurs in the ER and the Golgi. So are there ways to improve the way that the ER and Golgi function? That's part one of the question. Part two of the question is still the ER and Golgi, but also then the secretory part of getting proteins out of the cell. And so that's also driven by the ER and Golgi. So lipid membranes are by and large ignored in the entire mechanistic way people approach optimization. So the cells are considered manufacturing plants going down an assembly line, and the way that people feed it is basically they give it fuel, amino acids, and then vitamins to help the enzymes work correctly, and then collect the product at the end. But in between, the belt has to work correctly and everything in between, and so the belt and the machines are the ER and the Golgi. And no one's really addressing those things. They're not addressing the membranes where all the action happens. And so essentially there is this opportunity to do that. And I think people realize that and a lot of research was done around that to show that that's an important aspect. But the way to do it is by adding lipids and cholesterol. Now, people have added lipids and cholesterol in the past but they found that it has some downside because the lipids and cholesterol aren't soluble in aqueous solutions. And the methods that people have been utilizing to add them have caused problems. So in cases, you get precipitation of the lipids, which then would clog filters in the um, purification schemes. You've had other issues where the lipids have become oxidized. Once lipids are oxidized, they then become toxic. You then also have the issue of lipids adhering to 
the vessel walls. So there was a study done by Merck where they radio labeled the cholesterol and different free fatty acids and then tracked how well they stayed in the media. And what they found is that within 72 hours, the cholesterol and free fatty acids were more than 75% gone in steel and glass vessels and more than 90% gone in single-use bioreactors. So the addition of lipids has generally been not possible. They also have a very short half-life when you use your traditional methods. So the, the common methods are typically solubilizing um, lipids in ethanol and in um, detergent, and then basically taking that oil mixture and then dropping it into an aqueous solution, which would look like a vinaigrette where you have oil and water, and clearly that's a problem. So what we took advantage of is took advantage of that opportunity and created a novel technology where you're able to add um, cholesterol and lipids into the media in a way that they stay soluble and are stable. And by doing that, we believe we improve the energetics of the system, but we also aid in the formation um, of the membranes of the ER and the Golgi. And what I mean by that is that the ER is a cholesterol sensing organelle, and it is a low cholesterol um, organelle, whereas the Golgi is a high cholesterol organelle. And essentially making that split and creating cholesterol is an energy intensive operation. And to some degree, if there's no cholesterol in the media, the ER is going to be under some stress. And just to put things in context, ER is where ribosomes are located and ribosomes are what are responsible for the translation of the mRNA into protein. So you can imagine if there's stress there, that maybe you can have an effect on titer. And then after those proteins are translated in the ER and ribosomes and then shuttled into the ER in a lipid-containing vesicle, it gets to the ER, and then post-translational modifications actually happen in different parts of the ER where the trans part of the Golgi is where you have your higher-order glycoform. So your G2F or your silation happens in the trans-Golgi. And in many cases, though the Golgi isn't formed correctly, and so you get some of the you don't get some of the higher order glycoform. And so what we then did was ask that question: What happens if you add cell S into the system? Can you change the dynamics around glycosylation? And what we found is that we actually improved the consistency overall. So from vessel to vessel and from run to run, you're going to get more consistent glycolytic pattern. You don't get as much variation, which means that your assembly line is running at a more constant speed and your machinery is running at a more predictable pace. So you get more consistency in the output. And then we also noticed that we're able to more consistently add some of the higher order glycoform with the addition of cell S. So this approach of saying, where does the actual mechanistic addition of glycans happen? And it happens in the ER and the Golgi. And can you try to adjust those membranes and add lipids is the window that we took. It's a different tool. I think all the other tools are critical. And essentially using an additional tool essentially provides another lever for people to affect change 
and getting tighter and getting the post-translational modification that they're targeting. I think it's so interesting that you talk about the Golgi and the ER because it's an area that I haven't heard a lot of, as you say, and it makes sense to me um, also, as you were talking about the challenges that with lipids and cholesterols being added to media, it makes sense that, you know, maybe this is an area that hasn't been explored as much. And, and with the technology that you have with CellS, you would now be able to explore this as, as a tool and a lever. But I'm wondering, one of the things that jumped out at me was you were talking about, what, you know, the, the reasons why lipids and cholesterols have cholesterol have been issues in media before. And I just wanted to ask you, so we had talked about purification problems with lipids. We also talked about lipids adhering to vessel walls. And um, I just wanted to ask you, how does um, CLS uh, fare in terms of purification and, and also the, the challenge of, of adhering to, to vessel walls? That's a great question. So we accepted that there's issues with all the current technologies. And when we created Telas, just created an entirely new delivery mechanism for uh, the lipids and cholesterol. And the way that the mechanism was, the, the delivery mechanism was designed was such that it would be stable um, at four degrees and does not easily become oxidized. It doesn't become toxic, doesn't adhere to vessel walls. Um, and, and in a sense, it looks similar to a cell membrane and behaves similarly to cell membrane. So it doesn't stick to the vessel walls, just like a cell doesn't stick to the vessel walls. And then furthermore, in all of the purifications that people have done using cell S, there's been no difference from the control and no issues with, with filters being clogged. So it's a great question and one that we try to address in the design of cell S such that once the product was available that we wouldn't run into uh, a lot of the issues that had been well described in the literature prior to us getting into trying to figure this problem out. That makes a lot of sense because obviously it wouldn't be very effective if you just created the same problems that, that lipids and cholesterols had created in the past. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to, to create a product that, that avoids those issues. I'm wondering if you could share with us what are some of the obstacles that science would face when incorporating a technology like Celis into their production? It's a good question. I think that the incorporation of Celis into the current systems, we've tried to mediate the when we were, in, again, in the design before we approached the market, we asked each group um, and we asked many groups, what would be the optimal way for Celis to be brought into your applications. And most of the people responded that it would be easiest if you didn't change any of the current system that we're currently using. So can we use the same media base? Can we use our same feeds? Can we use our same feed timing, our same feed scheduling? Can we use all of our same current setup and just add cell S on top of what we're currently doing. So in the design of cell S, we designed it just like that. So when people are trying to bring cell S on as an additional lever, they can use it as an independent tool and not change any of their current processes. So it makes the entire optimization utilizing cell S a lot easier. The other half of it is that cell S itself is made under GMP conditions. It has a drug master file. It's animal origin free and chemically defined. So it addresses a lot of the 
supply questions um, that are asked before you can even bring a product in. Those are some of the issues that we we, we typically face because you need consistency and you need batch to batch consistency as well. And so by having something that's animal origin free and chemically defined, you have much more consistency in your manufacturing processes. So we tried again. We 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 in the design we addressed all those issues just in the design of CellS prior to us manufacturing it. So to that degree, it's a it's fairly simple to bring it into current processes because we've tried to eliminate some of the other obstacles. So bringing in CellS is pretty straightforward. That's great. And I just wanted to end our session today by thanking you, because I think this is a really interesting topic. And um wanted to see if there's anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners in closing. There is one part that I think, you know, I wanted to highlight because I don't know whether or not it came out when I was addressing the optimization, sequential optimization schemes. And that is typically there is this devil's choice that people have to make when they're trying to tune their glycosylations or if they're trying to get more higher order glycoforms, they typically sacrifice their titer or vice versa. If they're trying to increase titer, they then sacrifice their protein quality. And I think by using this additional tool, you can avert some of that devil's choice. So you don't have to have a sacrifice in protein quality or you don't have to have a sacrifice in titer by having an additional tool. And so we think of it as a tool and not something that displaces any other other technology, but something that when you bring it into the system has to be optimized, just like any of the other process parameters where there's optimization that occurs, you bring in CLS and you optimize it, and then you can avoid some of these devil's choices because you're utilizing an entirely new dynamic by going after the ER and the Golgi. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other biomanufacturing and stem cell related topics, please visit us at cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, downstreamcolumn.com. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving a review and visit our other podcasts at Cell Culture Dish Podcast on iTunes and Google Play.